0: Hello, everybody. My name is Lon Strohshine, former public company executive turned lifestyle engineer. One year ago, I left my job as a public company executive, and I left without a resume, without another job, without a Rolodex of clients. But I left anyway. I left believing that the best years of my life were in front of me and knowing that they weren't going to be found where I was standing. I left, and my mission has become to inspire the lives of a thousand dudes, to inspire the dude I used to be, to go do the things they want to do. My job here is to give you courage to finally act. And it's to remind you that dude at this stage in life, nobody shows up to do it for you. But I'm here and I'll travel that highway with you. Thanks for being here. Enjoy this episode. We'll see you along the normal 40 highway.
1: All right, welcome back to Normal 40, the podcast. My name is Adam Eaton. I am your co pilot on this journey. And as always, I am pleased to be joined by the lead pilot, the founder of Normal 40, and a dude that you absolutely need to know. His name is Lon Stroshine. Lon, welcome in again, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing fantastic, Lon. I'm even more excited today because a different kind of show than we've had in, in the past. Um, you know, Typically, we've done a few different styles of show. And I think these styles of shows, Lon, may just be my favorite because today we get to bring in another dude that people need to know and introduce you to somebody that we think is pretty cool and we think has a really cool story and something to share that uh, I think everybody can take something out of. I don't want to take too much away, Lon. I know you, you had a chance to meet our guest. His name is Larry, and we'll bring him in in a second. You had a chance to, to meet Larry, Lon, and I'm just curious from your standpoint, what is it about what Larry and you talked about, what you rambled about that connected you quickly and you said, man, this is a dude that everyone needs to get to know a little bit more?
0: Well, it'll take you about 20 seconds to understand um, exactly exactly how that came to be. So look, I never know who I'm going to be connected with. I never know who I'm going to come eyeball to eyeball with every time I hit join meeting and Larry is no exception. Um, Larry's a dude who's been following normal 40 for quite some time now. And he reached out to me, um, like so many people do. He sent me an email and just said, Hey, you've been really inspiring. You've been helpful. I've got something I'm working on and I'd love to ramble on it sometime. We set up a call. Uh, that's as much as I knew about him. And we were literally, I wrote it down and I'll, I'll bring it up when we, we talk to Larry, uh, in a few minutes, but in four minutes and 28 seconds into our conversation, Larry said, you know, Lon, I was forced to make a trade when my wife passed away in 2011, um, only two months after our eighth child was born. Okay, hold on here, hold the boat. Um, what do you What do you mean? I mean, I get the trade, and I get. Tell me about what happened. How did you endure that? And we we spent the next 35 or 40 minutes just talking about that. I mean. I, Look, I can say you can imagine, but you can't unless you've been through it. Nobody can imagine what he must've been going through. And so one of the things at the end of the conversation, I said, Hey, look, Larry, I think you've got a story that, um, is bigger than you. And I think you've earned a PhD in kind of some tough luck and hard knocks. And you're wired now after all this time to be able to talk about it and help people. Would you be willing to come on our podcast? And his answer immediately was, yes, yes, I'll tell my story. So long as it might maybe be something that can be helpful to someone, I'll come on and tell my story. And that's where we ended our first conversation. It was just a week ago. And I said, okay, well, let me talk to Adam. Let's book a time. And And that's this. So look, Adam, yes, I've talked to him. There's a lot I don't know yet about, about Larry. And we're just going to go find it out together, man.
1: Well, let's do that right now. Happy to bring in Larry Ambrose, who's, uh, again, kind enough to join us. Larry, uh, first off, thanks for, uh, for hopping in the, uh, the, the podcast this week. And uh, I'll start with the first question, and, and so it's one I'm always curious about because I think a lot of us who are listening to Normal 40 have a, have a similar story. But I'd love to learn, how did you stumble upon Normal 40? Lon and I joke all the time about him being just some random dude on the Internet. So how did this random dude from South Dakota end up in your, uh, in your, in, in your feed on LinkedIn and in your life?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, Lon and Adam, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on and talk to the audience. And it just was that I was in LinkedIn um, and I don't, you know, in the the world I live in right now, I don't spend a ton of time on LinkedIn um, or even on social media in general. But, you know, I had seen one of his uh, posts and just started to follow. I was interested, curious as to what he was talking about. And, you know, that and all of a sudden, you know, became the trade, right, and the trade that people make. Uh, in various stages of their life and their careers and so forth. And, you know, I thought back to my situation and some of the trades that I, I ultimately had to make um, some for some by my own, you know, my own, de- own decision process. So, you yeah. know, but he posted something uh, and recently and it was just about it was a post about, you know, having you're going to work those extra five or 10 hours. Right. And how long are you going to do that? And is there something better? And I, I just responded and said, you know what, that was me. Um, and I was doing that while trying to raise eight children after my wife passed away. And it, you know, it nearly killed me because it, it really did. And, and I said, um, so I made the decision to kind of walk away um, and I haven't regretted it. And so then he and I connected and, you know, we started to have the conversation he just alluded to. And, uh, you know, so here I am. So, uh, but it was, but I love the posts, right. And I love the other people coming in and chiming in on their own situations. Um, you know, they're inspirational to me as well. So.
0: Well, Larry, thanks for, thanks for agreeing to be a part of this. I want to, I want to kind of break your life into, into a a couple of different segments. Um, And just for the listener, we'll kind of set this up 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 front for them. And I want to talk about your life before 2011, who you were as a, as a, you know, company leader and what you're going through in your family and just the things you loved and enjoyed. And then you had a life event that you know, very few people can appreciate or understand or even wrap their mind around. And that's when your, your wife passed away. And I want to talk about that and I want to explore that a little bit. And then I want to talk about kind of, um, after you come out of that fog, which you say took years and I want to, I want to then talk about the chapter of what now, what next, how do you want to use this? So if you don't mind, take us back to, um, you know, your, your early memories, um, and your wife's name is Christine, right? Correct. Yes. Yes and just kind of how you guys met. And I mean, eight kids, that alone, Look, <laughs> the story could have ended right there. And this is podcast worthy. I mean, eight kids. Are you kidding me? I've got three. And I feel like on most days, I'm totally unqualified, unprepared, and out of sorts trying to chase three around, but here you, you guys uh, just tell us your story, how you met and, and, uh, your family and just all the things up to 2011.
2: All right. Well, sounds good. So we, uh, so we met on my 25th birthday uh in a bar in seattle city new jersey which is the beach uh the south jersey beach for those who are familiar and you know i walked in with a bunch of my friends and and there she was sitting you know at a bar at the bar stool with her friend and you know i knew i was either going to stick with them and probably end up having a crazy rough night or i'd go over and talk to the really pretty woman that was sitting right in front of me so i chose the latter and uh you know as they say Londa the kind of the rest is history right we just the conversation just sparked immediately and you know i think we both knew walking out of there that you know this is this is something really special so you know that started the whirlwind romance i was working for ge young in my career i was in sales um, at the time and she was a microbiologist working for a food manufacturing company outside of philadelphia and we did the long distance relationship between baltimore and philadelphia Um, And then ultimately came together. We got married in uh, 1993. And, you know, all of a sudden the kids started coming. Right. You know, Larry was born my oldest in 95. And then literally every two years um, from then on out, pretty much through to 2011. And um, it was the dream life. Right. I mean, she she was the rock who did everything at home and ran the household and ran it great. And I was out with GE. I had a career that I loved. They were really good to me and and I was challenged. And um, certainly there was, you know, no, no, uh, no time that was to waste. Right. Because we were busy living the life, but it was the life we chose. Right. She had her duties. I had mine and it worked. And um, so, you know, that's what life was. And it was crazy. Like I travel a lot. But when I was home, we were doing things as a family. The kids were heavily involved in sports. Uh, we had a really strong school and church community uh, in, in our hometown of Downingtown PA. We, we originally started in New Jersey and then we moved back to Pennsylvania and I'd taken a series of jobs, but, um, so that was it. And then, you know, in 2011, uh, my youngest Solomon was born in, uh, in March of that year. And, and I remember for those few months, I, I was home because I didn't have to travel as much, obviously trying to stay home and help her with the, with the children. And, um, you know, and I was, I was sitting uh, in my office one night. This was now in May, um, early May of 2011. And I was supposed to go down to, to a meeting with GE the following day. My role at that point was to lead an internal team uh, we were, I was working for GE Intelligent Platforms. We were a software division inside a monstrous GE, right? But but our goal was to get the rest of the big GE businesses to use our software. So I was the GE for GE leader, and it was intense, right? As you can imagine, a lot of pressure internally within GE. Um, but I loved it, and 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 it was a role that was really good. So we were I was going down to meet with uh, my boss and uh, some of my peers to talk about an investment we were going to need to make. Um, you know, into into the products. And actually, I wasn't even supposed to go to this meeting, but I was sitting in my office on a a Wednesday night prior to the meeting. And my colleague called and said, hey, can you come on down to this meeting? Um, Tomorrow was in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a four hour drive. I had done it many times. I You know, just get up early in the morning, drive down, have the meeting and be back, you know, sometimes in time for dinner. Right. So I, you know, I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll go down. It's important that I'd be there. And then, you know, so I got up four o'clock the next morning, drove down, um, was in the meeting and, uh, all of a sudden I got a call from my sister-in-law and are you raising your hand? Well, I am. I want, I want to just, before you get
0: there and I know where we're going. Um, so you're, you're busy executive GE, you're leading a team. You get called into this meeting and I want to, I want to hit pause in that moment. Okay. Because so many people who are, we're, we're infiltrating the earbuds of people right now. And, and there are literally thousands of people who are going to hear this. And they can relate to that. Busy, stressful, parent of many. One spouse is at home. One spouse is providing. Um, and you've by now you've found this rhythm. You've found this rhythm. And and you've done it now with your eighth child, Solomon, who would come along. And you've you've kind of you agreed along the way without ever formally agreeing to how this was going to work. You agreed that you were going to have a role and responsibility as a provider. And she was going to have the role and responsibility as the protector and caretaker and, and shepherd of family. She was going to be the, you know, what I call the, the home CEO, because that's, that's really what it is. And there's this unwritten rule that I call the contract. And that was just the contract that existed. You did what you did. She did what she did. You come together as you can, when you can, to share life together in those moments. So I want to stop there though, and, and everybody's going to get that, but I want to go back to this bar in New Jersey in uh, 1993, when you saw this really pretty woman at the bar um, you mar- in 1991. I think you married in 93. Yeah. And I want you to tell me what you remember about
2: that moment. Well, so <laughs> – so I was there, you know, so I'm walking into the bar again with my friends and, um, you know, it's 25th birthday and they're getting rowdy and you know, some friends had come in. I was in a shore house with a bunch of friends from home, which was Pennsylvania. But they also had you know, friends from Maryland who were up. And it was one of those nights it was probably going to get a little out of control. And I, you know, wasn't really up for that type of night. And so, you know, I saw Chris, and I went over and, you know, her eyes sparkled her smile she you know a radiant smile lit up the room but you know earlier in the day we had been on the beach and uh, you know we were playing sports trivia while playing wiffle ball and hanging out with a bunch of friends and one of the questions that one of my friends asked was name the starting five of five slam and jam I don't know if you guys remember the university of houston team with a and those guys right so we went through it right so when i met chris we were talking and all of a sudden we we flipped into sports and started talking about it and She played basketball for a local uh, college, Cabrini University in in Pennsylvania, New Philadelphia. And she literally out of her mouth said, name the starting five of Faisal and And I just was like, whoa, like, you know, that's our language. That was my language. And, uh, you know, that was it. So from then on, it was kind of all right, we're uh, we're on the same page here. And it was great. We just had the conversation went in long into the evening. Everybody else kind of fell off and went their own way. And there we were just still talking at the end of the night. So.
0: So i one more question, Adam, then I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, so, okay. So you, you end up, there's, there's a trade. There's a very identical trade, identifiable, tangible trade in your life. When you had plans and you were going down a path with your friends uh, you'd already spent most of the day with them. And you, you intended to when you set out that morning to spend that evening with them as well. And then something presented themselves in this case, um, Chris presented herself and you had a trade to make and and you know the the story is what it is you said the rest is history we know we know what trade you ultimately made and you end up um, choosing to spend some time with her just to see where it goes just to lean into that curiosity because you knew probably you'd regret it if you didn't I'm curious to know what so tell me the next morning I'm assuming you you you're you caught up with your guys you're uh, if, if you're like me when I was probably that age you probably Crammed a bunch of guys into a hotel room that was made for two and slept seven uh, uncomfortably, and that's just how it was. But tell me, what what did you tell them about Chris the next day?
2: Yeah, like well, first of all, it was a house. We rented a shore house, but it was everybody crammed into it. It was similar. Uh, you um, you
0: partied better than me then. Yeah, uh, us we get
2: out on weekends. It, it was a, it was a thing to do, right? That you did at the Jersey Shore. I'm sure many short towns, but um. No, I mean, they all came in kind of, all right, tell us what, you know, what went on. I'm like, look, I, she was, you know, it was just a great conversation we hit it all fantastic. I remember I walked her back to our house and then I walked back to, you know, our place and I, I remember leaving there like, wow, that was, that was something, right? So, and that was, and so it was obvious to my friends the next day. That this just not wasn't some passing you know, thing or a conversation or whatever, that it was something more significant. And because I felt it and it was pretty obvious. Right. And, and my 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 bouncing around, I'm sure the house and the tone of my voice that, you know, there was certainly more there. So I think they were actually, oh, this is awesome. This is pretty cool. So.
1: All right. Larry, I'm curious. We talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the life journey and, and sort of the way of separate your life out. I'm curious. Take me back to 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 that time from a professional Larry perspective. What were your passions? What were your goals? If, if I said to you, hey, what's your professional life going to look like in five, 10 years? What did Larry circa 1995, 2000? What would Larry's answer have been?
2: Well, so it's interesting. I came out, I graduated um, from West Virginia with an a industrial engineering degree in 89. I went right into GE as a technical sales training program. And so I spent two years on that program. And, you know, from then on, it was typically the path would be every couple of years, you would kind of transfer around. And but once I met Chris, um, you know, we were both pretty rooted in the Philadelphia area. And we also were pretty on much on the same page with wanting a family and not necessarily having to uproot every couple of years. So, I actually made the decision back in ninety it was ninety three to leave GE and go work for a small a small company in New Jersey for people I, I know who used to work for GE. So we moved up to New Jersey. I spent a few years there, and then ultimately I went to work for a software company that was based out of Boston. so then I could move anywhere in the mid-Atlantic. So then I, I, I moved we moved back to the Philadelphia area near closer to family. Um, and then, <laughs> GE bought that software company. So I ended up being back with GE. Um, But fortunately, I hadn't burned any bridges. Right. You know, when I left, I made it for the right decisions. They respected that. And then so I was back with GE and, you know, pretty much back on path right to the career. And it was I was in sales and marketing at the time. And, you know, I was calling on major accounts in the mid-Atlantic. I was responsible for the pharmaceutical industry. And then I moved into vertical marketing. And then ultimately I went into executive management. And, but it was, you know, it was a path that was that was laid out for me. And, and you know, you never define how it works. It just kind of happens. And I had some really good mentors and some really good bosses that, you know, were looking out for me and helped me. And I performed along the way to make sure that I was in a position to get those opportunities. And, you know, I just ascended kind of in my career that way. And ultimately in 2008, kind of hit what GE calls executive band um, in their in their leadership team. So
0: up until So up until 2010, we'll say, give me a scenario in your life that you'd say was, was the hardest day that you'd had up until, up until that point in your life where you'd really had to wrestle with something professionally, personally, whatever you want, but just something that, that comes to mind. That's like, you know what? In 2010, uh, up until that point in my life, this was hard. Give me, give me one of those if you would.
2: Well, I would say it was 2010. I mean, so I had just moved into that role with the GE for GE role, right? And it was a lot of pressure, right? I mean, the GE businesses were, I mean, they wanted to embrace our software, but they're also pushing back. They didn't want to be told what to do. Corporate GE was watching all this because we were starting as a, as a conglomerate to invest much more in software. And we were this little software company inside of GE that was doing well, that was serving the manufacturing space. So, there was a lot of pressure to perform and I was traveling constantly. And I remember we, you know, we had a uh, Chris and I after one such trip where I was home on a Friday night late, left again on Sunday to go on a trip, came back Thursday, was basically only going to be home for a weekend and then and traveling again. And, you know, we got to a point where it was like she said, you know, stop. Right. You know, uh, this is something where we have to take a step back. This is you know, Lon, you talked about kind of the unwritten contract, right? Well, I was in the process of breaking that unwritten contract, right? I was stretching it way too far. And, you know, because of the type of person she is and because of the marriage we had, we ultimately worked it through um, and got on kind of the same page. And I was able to kind of take a step back and, and kind of approach the responsibilities a little bit differently and, and just, give ourselves a chance to breathe. And I think we kind of got back on the same page, but, you know, in the end, you know, a little while later, right. Our 11th or excuse me, our eighth child Solomon, w- it was, you know, known now to be coming forward. And so we were like, okay, like, you know, we're back, you know, as a family, you know, we're back embracing, going to brace another child into our life here in the next, you know, eight, nine months. So, um, but I think it was one where I, you know, she kind of had me stop. And really reflect on where I was as a husband, as a father, um, you know, really just in every other role in my life outside of work. And I had to acknowledge that she was right. And, and again, I was, I was kind of breaking that contract unknowingly, right? Because I was just going crazy, you know, from meeting to meeting to meeting and so forth. And and it, it ultimately got us back on the same page. And then, of course, Solomon's born the following early in the following year. And then everything else kind of, you know, the story kind of. Takes a drastic shift a little while later but yeah that was that was a pretty significant moment in our relationship in our life
1: i'm curious when you stopped and did that analysis two-parter what did you see and did you like what you saw
2: well i know i mean i i didn't like what i saw because first and foremost you know, I'm a husband and a father. Right. And, you know, and my faith in God obviously is, is, well, not obviously, but to me is, is the most important thing. Right. But, and I wasn't leading that life. Like I wasn't leading my family. I wasn't being, you know, the husband to Chris. I wasn't being the parents to at the time, my, my seven children. Right. And, you know, and I, and, but in my mind, right, I was the provider and I was out there doing what I needed to do. And this was just a, Hopefully, a moment in time where I just had to kind of push through. But you know, at some point, you push hard enough, you break the people around you that you love. And and I felt like, and obviously, it was, you know, relayed to me that that was in the process of happening. And so, you know, Adam, to answer your question, I didn't like what I saw, right? I didn't like to how I evolved to that point in in my life. And you know, I just realized I kind of had gotten in such a frenzy in that mode that. You know, I had to I had to take a step back and just kind of look at the things that are really important. I still had to go do my job, right? It was still a lot of pressure. None of that really changed, but my approach to the job changed and and how I allocated time and just made sure I was there. When I was home, I was absolutely present. um, you know, and maybe put off that trip or didn't take that trip that, you know, maybe they wanted me to take. So
0: one of the key findings that Adam and I keep coming back to. Um, and it probably took me maybe 110 or 15 calls before I, before this realization really started to come in uh, into rambles. And I realized that, you know, so many of the people I talk to tend to be one awkward conversation away from a radically improved day, week, month, year, or lifetime. And I always, I, I would always hesitate to say lifetime because I'm like, well, that's a pretty bold statement. But again and again and again, I find in conversation and rambles with people that that's not, a, that's not an exaggeration. And for those of you listening now, you can, you can probably think about the, if you have anxiety before you go to bed or anxiety before you go into a meeting with your boss or anxiety about something happening at work, it's because you're avoiding an awkward conversation somewhere. And it might be with yourself. And one of the things, and it happened with me, my wife, my wife had to set me down and have the same conversation with me and um, about my trade and about what I was going to do. And what I've discovered is wives are pretty good about forcing an awkward conversation with spouses about things that we're just kind of in, in hindsight, when they pointed out first, we're defensive, then we're mad. And then after a while we, we get around to the point of saying, you know what? Shit. That's a good point. And uh, I don't really have, if I'm true to myself, I'm not, I don't really have a good argument here and we're forced to wrestle with it. And it sounds to me like Chris, Chris had that awkward conversation with you. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, if you remember, how did she, how did she bring it up? That in there's, there's a, there's a hundred different ways it could be. It could be in an outburst of dude, we got to talk about this, or it could be, we're going to dinner because I got to talk to you. How did she, how did she kind of finally get your attention to slow down, slow you down enough to have this conversation?
2: Well, she, she was, um, You know she didn't she wasn't one who threw a fit or typically did that but it was in her own way just a very direct conversation and it was you know to the point like look we we need to talk right and you know but in a voice that i immediately stood up and said okay this isn't this this isn't hey what do you want for dinner let's try to figure it out it was it was gonna be a hard discussion um and I think, Lon, I knew it, like you kind of know in your gut when you're pushing the limit, I think, a little bit. And sometimes you're just like, well, maybe she's OK with it or maybe it's it's fine. It'll be one more trip or, you know, the next meeting and I'll, and I'll come back, you know, and I'll, I'll turn it around a little bit. But, you know, in that world, it was, again, such a frenzied environment um, that, I you know, I kind of probably felt that, I think, you know, and but she just very directly. You know, said, hey, we need to have a conversation. And we did. And, and it was very stern and very matter of fact, but in a very loving way, you know, because she was about love and she was about our relationship. But um, but there was no mincing words. There was no like, oh, she doesn't really mean this. It was like, look, look, you need to slow down. Right. You need to reassess what's most important in your life. And that's our relationship and our kids, your kids. Um, and, you know, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks type of thing. And, and she was right. And, you know, there was, there was no fighting it. There was no trying to defend myself. Like, you know, as the conversation unfolds, it was obvious, right? Like I was doing what I shouldn't have been doing. Right. What I thought I was doing was providing. Right. But in the end, if you're just a provider, you're not really living your duties as a, as a father, as a husband, you know, at least in my work, in my, my opinion. So Um, it was an admin, man. It wasn't a screaming match or anything like that, but the message was very clear. So there may be no
0: scarier four words in a marital relationship than we need to talk.
2: Yeah. Yes. Something about
0: those four words, uh, kind of, kind of stops you right in your tracks. Adam, go ahead, man.
1: Well, I'm curious, Larry, You said at that point, you know, you decided that you didn't. Your, your work didn't stop. The pressure was still there. That the tasks were still there. The the goals were still there, but you changed. I'm curious. What did you change about yourself? What did you What did you you know uh, mentally, physically, um, intentionally change about the way you went about things post that conversation with your wife?
2: Well, it was it was an awareness, right? I mean, I think sometimes. Alan, about you, but like, but for me, I would get so consumed by it that, you know, it was, and I worked out of my house. That was the other thing. So I, my, my office was in my home and it had been for the last 18 years of my career. So it wasn't like I was traveling to an office. I was literally in the house, but it, there's a downside to that too, because that work never goes away. It's literally always right through that door. And that's what I would do up early in the morning, you know, doing all the work and then work all day during the day if I wasn't traveling, which was rare at that point, you know, and then back at night after dinner, right, going back to the office because I just had to get that last thing out. And I, and I think, you know, the net result of the conversation was I, I need to I need to be aware of, you know, how I'm working and I need to be more efficient in how I'm doing things because I need to spend time and be present right with my kids with my wife with you know with other things i had responsibilities for even outside the house that i was now foregoing right and so it was just more of an, uh, an approach a mental approach and i did actually make some changes and i did actually then you know, delegate some things to other people on the team who, you know, I didn't have to be at every meeting, right? But sometimes when you're kicking things off, you think you need to. Um, and so others could go do things that I necessarily didn't have to go get on a plane to go do. I could dial in and so forth. So making some changes that way and how I worked and, you know, choosing which, which meetings I absolutely needed to be at, um, I think helped, right? Reset the boundaries and kind of reset, you know, our relationship and was then able to kind of, Again, there were pressures at times to to you know to speed back up really fast, but I think in the end I was able to kind of you know hold to that, um, you know from through the rest of the year and so forth and into the following year. So,
0: so Larry, I would say that up to this point in your life, you've you've exemplified the life of every man. Um, you know, really that it's a it's a graduation, it's the meeting of the the future mother of your kids. It's the romance, it's starting a family, it's the unwritten contracts where you both kind of figure out your role in a successful marriage. It's the challenges of a marriage, it's a challenge of work, it's the balance of this, it's making enough, it's doing enough to have the image you want. I mean, it's it's just kind of, it checks all the box that everyone who ever is gonna keep is still listening at 30 minutes into this contest, uh, uh, podcast. Every single dude is gonna say, yeah, yeah, man. I've, I've been there and, and I get it. But um, in 2011, this is where the everyman gets wrung out of you and you are faced with something that very few people could, could comprehend. And I want to talk about that. Um, and I, I shared earlier before you were on Larry, I shared that when you and I rambled not that long ago, days ago, I didn't know your story. I didn't know you. You and I'd never met. We didn't have a long email exchange. Um, And at four minutes and 28 seconds into our conversation, you said, I was forced to make the trade when my wife passed away in 2011, only two months after my eighth child was born. That threw my life into chaos. And that for all of the obvious reasons um, grab my attention. And I, if you, if you don't mind, walk us through, you started to talk about that morning and this trip that you had, and it was just another day. It was another day in your life. It was another day traveling. It was another day living under the contracts that you had, you'd started to renegotiate at home and living under the contract of provider. Um, and you were the team lead and you were called to go do a job that was your job to do. And if you don't mind, give us, let's drop us, let us be a fly on the wall for the next 48 hours of your life starting that morning.
2: So I, as I mentioned, I had agreed the evening before, I was supposed to take the meeting virtually from home. And I had got a call from a colleague. I agreed to go to Charlottesville to have the meeting. So I was down there, um, with every intention to by one o'clock, we'd be done the meeting, I'd be on the road by two, right back home by six or seven. So in the meeting that morning, I get a call from my sister-in-law and, I, you know, which is not unusual, but I, I, you know, I didn't answer it. I was, the phone was on silent, right? But I could see she called in. And then, you know, a short while later, I got another call from my sister-in-law and I'm like, hmm, that's a little odd that she called right away back. So I said, I, you know, I excused myself and, and, and went out to actually take the call I didn't get her because she had just hung up but i did get another call in from another 610 area code which is philadelphia area and it was uh an officer from the thorndale we live in thorndale pennsylvania from the thorndale police department and they said you know we're in this is officer smith we're in your house working on your wife and i'm like what do you mean you're working on my wife i just left her this morning she's a picture of health like what do you mean and and then, so everything just started to spin, you know, and, you know, he said, where are you? You need to come home. It's serious. And, and I'm, I'm pressing him and, and he's not able to kind of give me more information. So then, I, you know, I walked back into where my colleagues were. They see I'm probably right. Where as it ghost so at that moment, it, and the conversation quickly shifted to how am I getting home? You know, long story short, I was just going to get in a car and drive. And my two of my colleagues said, no way, we're driving you home. So we got in the car, we drove up. And, uh, you know, all kinds of things are, are going on behind the scenes while this is happening. But to me, you know, my world is just crashed. Right. And I'm trying to figure out what's happening, frantically trying to get, you know, some information and and partly hoping and thinking that was, you know, Chris, just maybe she passed out. You know, maybe she was dehydrated. Maybe she didn't, just didn't feel well this morning and by the time I got home, she'd be up sitting on the hospital bed, you know, with the same bright smile. And when I walked in and, um, so when you were driving home, you didn't know yet
0: the extent of the seriousness here, you were still, you were still negotiating with yourself on yeah. when things are going to get back to
2: normal. Yeah, I, I was. And, um, and, but the, but the officer's tone, you know, was telling me it was serious. Right. And I was just trying to connect with whoever I could, but You know, ultimately, my brother-in-law kind of got to the hospital first because all kinds of things were happening with my my sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws and in-laws and so forth in the family. And he got in there and was in the hospital room when they called it. it. What ultimately happened, Lon, was she skipped a beat. Right. And I don't think I think she literally died at that second. Right. And um In hindsight, she would have died right outside my office door and it wouldn't have been anything I could have done about that. And, And so in retrospect, I don't think I was supposed to be there. I think I was called down to Charlottesville by my friend for, you know, you weren't supposed to be in this situation because I wouldn't have been able to do anything. Right. And it would have been imagine that. Right. Walking out of your office. So so my brother in law calls me and delivers the news like you know, I'm sorry, brother, she's gone. And, uh, you know, the world completely crashed at that moment. And fortunately, my colleagues were there to kind of, you know, help pick up the pieces. And, you know, we ultimately made the decision to to get to the hospital, because then I'm negotiating in my head, do I have enough time to get there before I have to get home to get the kids off the bus and greet them? So we end up going on the hospital. I literally had 10 minutes with her. Right. And, you know, all my family was present. My wife's family was there. Um, so they got up let me have a few minutes with her. And then, you know, we took off to go to my house and I had to greet my children, um, off the bus and, and let them know that their mom had just passed away. Right. So you can imagine that conversation and how that went. So yeah, everything just completely crashed in that moment. Um, And, you know, I'll stop there a few more questions, but then I can certainly go on and talk about what happened post that over the next 48 hours. But, um, yeah, that was something. What'd you tell your wife in the 10 minutes
0: you had with her alone?
2: (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, thank you. Right. Like, like I couldn't believe she was gone, obviously. And I'm still in my mind, not wanting to believe it, but just, you know, we had a great relationship. We had a great marriage. There was nothing in my mind that was left unsaid. Um, You know, we had our moments, just like I mentioned to you a little bit earlier. But um, yeah, just like, thank you, but stay with me. Like, I don't know how I'm going to go deal with this. Like, give me the strength to go tell our children what just happened. Right. Like, what do I say? Right. And so, you know, the. You know that's probably about the best that I could do at that moment, right? It was just, you know, I think the straw would probably be the right word, but yeah. But just clearly help me go tell my kids, our kids, what you know, give me the right words. So,
0: what did you tell your kids? Only so hours or minutes later. So I went,
2: yeah. I mean, so I went to them. I gathered them. It wasn't my oldest wasn't home yet because he was at the high school. So he was on a different bus. So these were the youngest ones and. The three youngest ones were actually at the neighbor's. Um, they weren't even at school. Yet, so they were back at our house. Everyone had gathered. And my brother-in-laws were there with me. And they kind of gave me some time with them. And I just said, you know, I, the only thing I could think of was like, who does your mom love the most? And, you know, the oldest who was there at the time, Jordan, said, you know, Jesus. And and which tells you a little bit something about Chris, right, and where her priorities were. And I said, you know, today, Jesus took your mother home. Right. And, you know, slowly the realization kind of hits them, you know, probably oldest and youngest. And yeah, I'm like your mother passed away. Right. And it's just, you know, you can imagine the tears and the emotion that happened after that. And then my son came home and I had to kind of go through that process with him, too. So.
1: I'm curious. I, I had a, a, a death in my family recently and, and Lon was actually someone who was uh, really helpful and, and really supportive of me. And, and one thing that I learned about myself in that moment was you kind of switch into protector mode. Right, you switch into protector mode. You switch into task mode. You switch into okay, I gotta go do this. I gotta go do that. And I'm curious, did you have the same phenomenon? Did did you just based on the on the way? And and I think you you know your work background is kind of similar to to what I what I've done in my career. I just went right to task mode. I gotta do this, 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 this. I gotta get this meeting done. How did how did you sort of comprehend those first? 12, 24, 36 hours, you know, and were you, were you finding yourself in sort of that task protector mode? Yeah, I have no
2: doubt. Like it it was definitely task mode, right? You know, you just kind of, you're trying to survive at that moment. You're in a complete fog, right? And you're, you can't even see straight. You're just trying to get your footing to, to rationalize what you just went through. and Is it really real? Um, So what I, similar to you, I I just, it was, okay, we got to do this there's a, you know, there's a funeral mass to plan for, we got to go to the funeral home, we have to do this, we have to do that. And, you know, you kind of throw yourself into it, because it's, I think, a survival mechanism. And and to your point, you're the protector, right? You want to make sure your kids um, are okay, right? Because what are they thinking about, right? They just lost their mom, right? The, the rock of the, you know, the heart and soul of the house. And so imagine that pain. So yeah, it was, it was pretty much task um, and just trying to get through. Now, fortunately, you know we are blessed with a huge support system here. Um, you know, our, my wife's family is so close, and they were all here. And you know, it was like Grand Central Station the next day with people in and out. Um, you know, and and so, in some respects, that was good because it shifted my mind away from having to deal with with what I was dealing with. And and there were certainly a lot of people to help me with the task, but. But yeah, I mean, that the way my brain works is okay. I got to go do. I got to accomplish this. You know, I was probably would pull out a spreadsheet if somebody would have let me write and try to fill it in. But, um, but that you know, that was it. That's how I had to deal with it. And then, and and honestly, and I, I'll just jump ahead for a little bit. We can come back to this. But you know, that's how I survived. Right? I, we had a ton of help, but it was very much like I'm just gonna. I got to make decisions. We are going to move on. We got to keep doing this. We got to keep doing this. And and ultimately. I never grieved. Right. Like, I think I made peace, uh, you know, with her passing and and so forth. But I didn't grieve until 2017. Right. After I crashed. And and it's because I think I was in that mode of I just have to provide. I just have to protect. I just have to deal with this. And, uh, you know, you kind of jump into that, I think, naturally. And, you know, in some ways, a defense mechanism in other ways, you know, you really do have to protect your kids and, and make sure they have what they need. So.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask that. And, and I, you know certainly if you want to jump ahead in the story, um, you know feel free. But I, I think what I realized and still am realizing is at some point something jars you out of that mindset. Something shakes you out of that. Something I almost call like a jolt of electricity, like you're plugging a lamp and you get a little bit of that shock and it sort of jars you out of it. What was that thing that jarred you out of it that sort of gave you that shock and sort of gave you that moment where you, you then started to have all these things kind of hit you that maybe you hadn't thought about before?
2: You mean from a grief perspective or just from, you know, just from jarring you out of the task oriented
1: mode that, that yeah, you know, you jarring know. you out of the task oriented mode, jarring you back into like holding, holding like what just happened to me here?
2: Yeah, I would, I would say it's a little bit different for me. Like, I, so I had an experience probably two months into um, after she passed. And, and, it, and until that time, you know, again, I was kind of in the fog, I was trying survival mode. And, you know, it was, it was bleak. Right. And we were at the beach. We had been down there for 10 days. We were coming home. Our friends of ours were staying in the house for the following week. They asked us to stay down for a few more days. My kids were at their wits end. my two year old daughter at the time comes off the beach, stubs her toe screams, you know, crazy screams, but we get her home. We, you know, we take care of, her. we get her home. And two days later, she's got, you know, black going up her leg. Right. So she had an infection. So I take her to the hospital and, um, and she surely had an infection so we had to admit her and and so you know it's two in the morning i'm sitting in my two-year-old daughter's hospital room looking at her with the ivs going into her arm with a you know a block of wood strapped to her arm so she doesn't roll, pull it out and um and i'm just at my complete wit's end and i i just said God, like if you're trying to break me, like you have done a fantastic job. Like what else do you want me to deal with? Right. This was two months after she died. I'm sitting here looking at my two year old daughter in the hospital overnight. And, and I, and I just, that was it. Right. I mean, I was at my point of breaking and then about a week later, you know, I went for a run. She, she got out of the hospital. She was fine. She actually enjoyed all the attention she was getting. Um, So I went about a week later, I'm out for a run and I I just finished up. I'm coming by our house. I take a right into the cul-de-sac and I just felt everything's changed. Everything just the, the whole environment just felt different. I felt like I can look up and, you know, see the veins on the leaves of the tree. I just felt like this presence and, you know, it was about a hundred yards. I didn't feel like I was even walking. I felt like I was floating and, and I didn't look back, but in my mind, right through my faith, I felt like there was Jesus on my right shoulder, Chris on my left. And the and the message that I got, was you know she is with me now right it is your job to go lead your family and you know that that eventually dissipated and I was back on the ground and trying to what just happened but you know it didn't take away the pain it didn't take away the anguish it didn't put back my wife into my life but it did give me peace um so Adam to your point like it just helped me kind of begin the slow climb out of the abyss, right. And be able to kind of function in a world that I needed to figure out, refigure out how to function in, in the new role I was going to take. And, you know, so one foot, the next step, you know, and so forth. And again, with the, with the help of an army of a support system that wouldn't let us fail, even if we, even if we tried, you know, we were able to kind of get through that first year, you know, sometimes literally 10 minutes at a time. Cause that's all we really had to, to be able to do. So.
0: You mentioned um, kind of some of the experiences you had. I remember when, when we talked a week ago, you, you talked about in, in hindsight, probably not with foresight at the time or, or understanding at the time, you talk about the blessings that, that, presented themselves and kind of helped you, helped you through the process. And I think you just, you just um, shared one. And then you, you also mentioned that um, at the same time, the, the title you have as dad and the responsibility you have as provider is still a driver. It's still a thing to the point to where in 2015, and I don't remember the exact date, but you ended up. In the hospital yourself um, for panic reasons, for stress, for and, and shit, who wouldn't? I mean, I can't believe, I can't believe you lasted four years. I mean, uh, can you just talk about that, that moment, and if that created any sort of wake-up call for you to say, okay, hold on, we gotta, we gotta rethink this.
2: Um, it should have created a wake-up call. Let me put it that way then in 15, you know, things started to ramp back up at work and we were making big investments in the software business. Um, and you know, it got a little bit crazy again. And so this was, uh, you know, this was Easter Sunday night. We had had dinner at my in-laws and, um, so it was Sunday going into Monday and I woke up in the middle of the night and I'm like, okay, I think I have to go to the bathroom. And I I passed out on the way to the bathroom and I came to, and then I was like, okay, I got to go get Larry, my oldest to, to call nine one one, and so I got up, walked, started walking down the hall, passed out again. You know, long story short, I got to his room. He called the ambulance. By the time the ambulance got there, you know, I was able to kind of walk to the ambulance. They took me to the hospital. I did all kinds of tests on my heart. Everything checked out. It was just stress, right? I mean, the the, the summary was probably you probably just had you know some stress. You're under stress. Um, you know, but my thought shifted to my kids watching their only you know parent, living parent being whisked away in an ambulance in the middle of the night and, um, you know, ended up through the rest of 2015 and 16 as things ramped up and responsibilities increased and the pressure increased and so forth with where we were. You know, I was back in that mode again, but this time I didn't have Chris, you know, kind of pulling the reins back in. Right. I was trying to do everything at home. I was trying to do everything at work. I I felt like my brain was processing 24 seven constantly. And um, and while I should have looked at that as a warning sign, um, you know, in the end, I didn't. I kind of plowed through thinking I got to, you know, again, provide for these kids. Um, And that ultimately led to 2017, you know, progressively things completely broke down and, um, you know, that's when I ended up crashing. But, um, but yeah, so that's, I I ignored that warning sign to some degree and I I shouldn't have. So tell
0: us about 2017, what was the crash?
2: So I, you know, again, I was, you know, roles were changing, responsibilities were changing. We were doing lots of stuff within, um, within our part of GE to really kind of launch this new business called GE Digital that we were investing in. Lots of trips to California because that became our headquarters. Quarters, I kicked off 2017. You know, four trips in the first five weeks. We were doing integration. so there were integration meetings, Um, and it was just intense. And at that point, I think my body just started to break down. Right, I I wasn't sleeping. Right, so I, you know, if I went to bed at eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock, I'd wake up at three, and I and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I just would wake up and start working, and then you know maybe try to go back for a half hour before I had to get up at six. Right, and you know, you do that over an extended period of time and it, it just starts to wreak havoc on your body. And and I, I started to lose my ability to, you know, cognitively process. Like one of my gifts in, in the working world was to be able to collect data from multiple places, you know, synthesize that data and come up with some, okay, this is what we're going to go execute as a strategy. And you know, was largely successful being able to do it. I, I stopped being able to even understand data coming into my brain and no less try to, you know, process it and make decisions around it. So it, the, the You know, I hit a, a point and uh, it was a meeting at the end of April. It was a Friday night, five o'clock. It was supposed to be a short meeting to talk about revenue recognition in the business I was running. It should have been a quick call. I agreed to it because of that. My kids were downstairs. We're waiting to go out. An hour later, and I could not for the life of me comprehend what the person was trying to tell me. And it was probably doing a good job. I just probably wasn't understanding it. And I just got so frustrated. I hung up the phone. I said, this meeting's over. I have to, I have to leave. And my body was completely shaken, right? Just, I, and I just had to sit there for like a half hour to compose myself before I can go down and even see my kids. And, and I, that weekend, I'm like, this, I have to do something different. I have to make a change, right? So I went to my, uh, on Monday morning, I called my counselor, I called my, Doctor who happened to be uncle and nephew to each other, which was a a huge benefit to me. And I went and met them both the next day. And they both basically said to me, You know what? You got to take a step back. You have to take a leave of absence. You're about ready to have a nervous breakdown. You have to do it right now. And so, you know, normally I would have said, Oh, no, I'm fine. But I was like, You're right. And so, made a decision, talked to GE, worked it out. And uh, that's when I took the step back. And, and, you know, the kind of first decision, because I was actually forced to do it physically, I was forced to do it. Um, but that's what set off kind of a whole process that led me to make a decision that I made, right, the trade that I made, which was ultimately to stay home and raise my kids and not go back, you know, to a corporate job.
1: Larry, Larry, I'm curious. Take me, take me back to that doctor's office, and you're hearing, you know, your doctors tell you, "Hey, you, you got to step back. It, it's time to step away." What's the emotion? Is it? Are you scared? Are you are you happy? Are you are you relieved? What's the emotion when you hear the words, "You got to step back right now"?
2: So, Adam, I was at that point in my life. I I I was anxious. I was clinically depressed because I went through the you know the testing through my my doctor made me kind of go through the testing I was just distraught right I was almost back to the same point with the fog in my brain that I was back in 2011 after Chris passed away right it I didn't know what I didn't feel right that was my problem I couldn't feel anything I you know and and I remember the first few weeks though of the leave I thought I was going to get kind of the big weight off your world um or weight off your shoulders type of feeling. And, and, and I didn't, right. Like it was more of a guilty feeling. Like I just left, you know, the people at work and left them high and dry. And because you're so wired in the world we were, we live in and the jobs we have that, you know, I, I was kind of almost feeling guilty about that instead of, look, I'm doing this for a reason that's to reclaim my health and my life. And, you know, God forbid something happened to me. Then what about my kids? And, you know, and the doctors were great. And and they were, you know, I listened. I wasn't fighting it at all. Believe me, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a capacity to fight at that moment. I, I just listened to them and I'm like, you're right. And um, so they were very good at just kind of taking me through the right steps in the process. Like, don't do anything right now. Just be present with your kids. Be a dad. Do the things that they need you to do. Rebuild your relationship with them. Don't think about anything. And And, you know, once I kind of reoriented my head around what I was doing, what I needed to do, and I really needed to heal. That's when I started to kind of make progress and, and my brain functioning came back and started to clear up and so forth to the point that I can could then go make the decisions I needed to make, you know, a few months later.
0: We it's something Adam and I talk about a lot. In fact we've done entire podcasts about the exact sequence you go through this weird guilt. Uh, it, it's it's no different. If, if you've never been through it, it's the same guilt you can feel when you just take a week vacation. Yeah. You know? So that's my, this is for people who, who can't quite grasp what you are, but it's, it's that feeling you get on day three of vacation and day four, when you know you go back in day six and you're starting to get anxiety and it's like everybody's still there working. And I know this important call is going on right now. It's all that times a thousand times yeah. a thousand. And it's this weird guilt that we get and we don't want it. And then, we have to, you know, you have to accept that it's there and you have to give yourself permission to deal with it. You know, I think that a huge part of mental illness is yeah, you feel guilty for having it. You feel guilty for not feeling good and it's not your fault. Um, it's an, it's an illness. It's not a decision. And, um, and to accept that you need help, I'm, I'm relieved, you know, you, you had therapists how wonderfully helpful to help you identify this or who knows how it could have turned out for you. Yeah. Had you not had that support system and had you not had the wisdom to, to seek that kind of help. And you gave yourself permission to do it. Although it wasn't easy. It was really damn hard to wrestle through all that guilt and, and, and accept it. But I want to talk about the trade. I want to talk about the trade. We've got, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, and so in, and around 2018, you made the trade. Tell us about what you gave up, and what you decided to do.
2: Well, so this was back in, ultimately, this was in 17, right, where I made the decision. So I had gotten to a point during that summer where, like I said, my head had been clearing. And, and I, you know, that's when I did some of the deep work on the grief, right, and some of the deep work on just resolving some of the things that were going on uh, in my life. And of course, you know, my counselor, my doctor were, were big parts of that as well. But it was just you know, being present in this world and and realizing what it took to actually raise my children the way I really wanted to. And, you know, it's hard to raise children today, right? You need to stay connected with them. There's social media influences everywhere. and and, you know, it's very easy to kind of lose touch with them. And that's what had happened, right? I had just become disconnected from them. I, you know, emotionally I was spent when I was home. So I wasn't engaging in conversations or it was quick know, try, let's try to make a decision here. Right. And that's not what kids need. Right. They need you to be present and to be available. And Chris was no longer there to do it. I had to do it. Right. And as I was kind of working through all of this and it was a process, right. I ultimately was, I came to a conclusion that I couldn't, what I couldn't like, I couldn't make up was time. Right. I couldn't buy time. Right. So if I went back and worked, that was another 40, 50, however many knowing me, 60 hours. Right. Eventually that I would then not be able to be present with my kids, you know, in their lives. And and ultimately, I am I, like, there's more to my life. And, and the thing that I really wanted and I, and I end up basically rewriting or not rewriting, writing for the first time in my life a mission statement, and I just prioritized what was most important for me. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that what I really wanted was a life of joy. And and you kind of think life of joy after going through all that. But it to me, joy was it, like it's a state of being, right? Like, you know, happiness and sadness, they come and go, right? But if you can get to a joyful place in your life, then you can withstand anything. And I knew I was going to have to have that if I was going to be able to make this decision because it wasn't going to be easy. You know, the life I was going to choosing was not going to, you know, there was going to be pressures to to go back. There was going to be pressures that, oh, we have to give up this because we can't do this anymore because I'm not making that income. And, you know, I just desperately wanted to get to that place. And through this process, um, you know, I ended up getting to a point where I was able to make the decision. And the decision was, I'm going to stay home. And raise my kids um and that's it and and I'm gonna give up and again GE was great um you know they they were very accommodating empathetic um you know we worked it all out but in the end I decided that that was what I was gonna do and and the trade was you know for me professionally I just walked away from a 30-year career that I had spent a lot of blood sweat and tears building up it was lucrative to a point that I at least provide for a family of eight right but I was going to all right, I'm going to go spend down my assets and hopefully everything kind of works out right type of thing. Now I was a little, I wasn't as, you know, cavalier as that. I actually had a financial planner and accountant kind of helped me with this a little bit. So I at least had a path to, you know, do this for a number of years. And um, but that was a huge trade. But the trade that I was trading to was I was going to be a dad. Right. And I my kids were in very formidable years. And I think, Lon, I mentioned to you this last time, I the ultimate thing I said is I'm just going to invert my retirement, right? You know, most people get to 60 and then they retire and they get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. I'm going to enjoy that at age 50 and I'm going to do it for as long as I can. And then I'm going to go back to work if I have to, and, you know, work till wherever I have to, but those five, 10 years that I'm going to make the trade for are going to be the best years of my life and my kid's life, because I'm going to be there with them every day. And that's ultimately I'm six years in and, and that's what's happened.
0: So Larry, you've, I think that's absolutely beautiful and absolutely beautiful. And it's, it's an element of, of what I, I teach in the trade in, in taking some of what you thought you'd need in 10 and 20 and 30 years and using it to build the life that you want. Now your situation is dramatically different than most, but the concept is the same. It is the exact same. And I'm curious, you know, what you have, I, I want to know, what you want to do with this education, you've been dealt a hand that you didn't ask for, um, and it hasn't been easy. It's been equal part. It's been part blessing and part heart-wrenching. And you've got this PhD, this PhD in challenge and overcoming and perspective and and trades, trades of being a professional provider or trading that to be a dad. I mean, I just, I think that's so beautiful. And holding this PhD, the one you didn't want, but you've got it. What do you want to do with that now? As you think about this point in your life, your kids are getting a little bit older now. What do you, in the next, you know, I call it the next 40, what do you want to do with this PhD that you've
2: got? Yeah. So, so great question and, and that's evolved but I will tell you back to 2017 two of the five you know pillars of my of my you know mission was a or one of them give back right I've been given a platform I never asked for wouldn't wish it on anybody in the world but I was giving it and I I was given it and I've learned a ton through it so give back help others you know help them Inspire them through the challenges. I was able to kind of figure my way out with help of others or through myself and, you know, be able to help others do it. And, and this, the last one was honestly, I wanted to fall in love again. Right. And I, and I did not think that was possible working a full-time job and trying to be dad to eight kids again, because it was, it's, you just don't have the time, right. To kind of build a relationship. So, so fortunately, Lon, here I am, you know, six years into this and, and those two things are coming true. Right. So I've met a person in my life, Dawn Jacoby, and, and she is in a very similar position, right. She has a triumph over tragedy story herself. We're both in the process of finishing up books Um, about that. But we have a common mission, right? And that is to really help people um, through our life experiences and what we've learned and what we learned doing a lot of really difficult work, right? I mean, it takes a lot to kind of figure it out, overcome it, to not only get to the other side, to where you can kind of live, breathe again, but to then thrive, right? Because that's ultimately what you want in your life, you want to be able to thrive. And so we both feel like we're at a point now where we are at that place. Our relationship has kind of come together. Um, and so we are in the process now of kind of launching what we're going to do that that to live out that mission. Um, you know, and we're, we're starting up a podcast. It's the His and Her Life Hack podcast. And again, we hope to, you know, bring to bear to people who just need to hear it. And, our solution might not be the best solution. It might not be the only solution, but sometimes just hearing that people have done certain things and and have been able to make their way through it is enough, right? To give a person hope, right? And so we hope to be able to, through a podcast, through the books, through, you know, speaking, presenting, to help people kind of get through some of these significant life challenges that they have. And um, that's why I love the work that you're doing, right? Because you're getting people to kind of think differently, to reassess their life. Right. And what's most important. And and sometimes, you know, you don't want to go through something that I had to go through that kind of shocks you to your point into making that type of decision. You hopefully can come to that, you know, through your own decision making process. Um, but whatever point you however you arrive at that point, you want to be given the tools and the the insights to kind of help make that decision so you know that's what i want to do you know really now for the next however you know 10 15 years or whatever however god you know puts me on this earth to be able to kind of give back and to do that um so we're excited by it i'm excited by it she's excited by it so um you know we're uh (laughs) we're ready to get going
1: the, the podcast space gets even more crowded, Lon. Uh, Larry, I've, I've one final one for you, and it may be the, the, a really impossible question to ask. So I apologize on the front side. And I also preface it by saying, I know your journey's not done yet, and there's still more that you want to do. And I know that the people listening uh, certainly will support you in that effort. But thinking about where you are today, we're recording this on June 21st, 2023. If you can think back to the last decade plus, and you could give me one word to describe your journey what one word would you use?
2: Uh, Blessed, right? And, And you're probably thinking that's crazy and it sounds crazy, but you know what? Like I just look back what I lived through. First of all, the life I had, right? Those first 20 years of marriage was, was truly blessed. Right. And to have that, to have the eight beautiful kids, right? To be given the opportunity to kind of lead them into adulthood, um, to be given, you know, this platform, again, not anything I would have asked for, but I have had so much good happen to me in my life as a result of it. Um, You know, the support that we receive from so many people from all aspects of our life, right? That you know, I can't help but look back and say, you know, I've been blessed to actually get to this point, right. To be in a position to have kind of worked my way through it by the grace of God, with the help of an army of a support system, with the love of family, you know, and the love of now a partner that I've met in Dawn to, to be able to be in this position to now live out what I believe is my mission in life.
0: Well, Larry, I'd, I just, I'll close this down like this. Um, Thank you, man. Thanks for sharing the story. Um, I didn't expect you to pick blessed as your word, but I think it absolutely shows everyone the type of dude you are, man. Um, I have a mission. My mission is to inspire change in the lives of a thousand people. And when I get to the thousandth person, I'll start worrying about the next thousand and your story, man, where you're going The reason I wanted you on this podcast is a story that's going to inspire change in priorities and in people's lives. And it's just absolutely incredible. Um, Another reason why we wanted you on, Adam and I have been going through the D's. We talk about the D's that'll shock you into this new way of thinking. And the D's are go through a downsizing, a corporate downsizing, go through a divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis. You can start drinking Tuesday night. 8.30, 8.30, kids are in bed, you start drinking, that'll be a problem, or you can have a death near you. And and this is an example where, you know, it's the, it's the PhD you have, it's the story you didn't want, but the platform you now have, and you're doing something with it. And you're turning this moment of struggle into an opportunity to inspire priorities for others. And I think it's absolutely, um, unbelievably beautiful. And I want you to know that, um, The normal 40, dude, we're going to be here for you. And when you and Don get ready to launch, anything we can do, anything I can do, anything that Adam can do, or anybody, any of the 20,000 people who follow us, um, we'll we'll show up for you. We want you to be successful. We need you to be successful. And we need to to, um, rally around people who have missions like yours. So thank you for just being a really fantastic human being.
2: Well, I appreciate it. And thank you again for having me on and be able to kind of share the story. And, and, you know, for your, you know, your example that you're you know putting out there in the market to people, it's inspirational to me. Right. Um, you know, as I'm kind of making some of these decisions and kind of seeing the influence you're having on people and so forth. So that inspires me as well to kind of you know move forward. There's lots of people out there, I think, who need help. And, and certainly, you know, we're there in a position, I think, to help them along. So, again, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: So as you're just starting your business and you're just getting going, just let us know how we can be supportive of you and uh, and we'll be there for you, man.
2: All right. Thank you.
1: Adam, over to you, boss. Again, Lon, that was, uh, I don't even know that I have words to wrap this conversation up. I mean, talking to Larry, hearing the story. Uh, I mean, there were times where, you know, yeah, he's such a good good speaker. You you want to laugh, you want to cry, you, <laughs> you you don't you don't really know all the feelings you have there. But uh, that's part of the Normal Forty movement, and and that's the part I love about what we do around here is that we make it okay to have feelings and talk about feelings and be open about your feelings. Uh, and and Larry's obviously a dude that uh, we all need to know and support as well too. So uh, again, Lon, we usually close up shop. You you share with people some plugs where they can find you, where they can find us, how they can get more of the Normal Forty content. So i'll uh, I'll give the mic back to you. what's what's new with the book? What's new with the the insider, the rambler? get Give us all the lowdown you got. Oh, I'd love to. So really quick,
0: um, one, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you would follow it, share it with a friend, share it with somebody who needs it and follow Larry. grab him on LinkedIn um, and follow Larry and get to know his story because he's just starting and he's gonna need some support. So get on and follow him. Um he's just an extension of what we're doing here. That's it. Um, so please do that Two, Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Of course, you, I've got a private group there. You can find me, you, you know, all those stories. I want to talk about the trade though. Um, the trade is my book coming out July the 19th. And actually, um, it won't be a lot of heads up, but on July, on June the 28th, which is just right around the corner, I'm going to have a live event here in Stu falls. And it's, uh, I'm so curious. I have no idea who's going to show up. It might be just me alone in a, in an auditorium, or it might be, hundreds of people. I just have no idea. Um, and you can find me there, but, uh, I, I really want everybody to go sign up, go to my website, sign up for the Rambler, because that's where I'm going to put all of the details you're going to need to have to buy my book. And I want to say one more thing about my book. I've let 37 people read it. One of them, um, is general Stanley McChrystal. And he endorsed my book in three days. He got it. Never met me. I don't know this guy. I don't have a, I don't have an in with him. He got it read it and endorsed it in three days. And the other one I'm really excited about uh, who did the forward to the book is a guy who's sold hundreds of thousands of copies, if not a million by now. And a, um, a book called 12 Months to 1 Million, uh, Ryan Daniel Moran, who did the forward to the book there again, a dude I didn't know. Uh, I managed to get to him and we started talking about Normal 40 and he did the forward to the book. And my point is, I'm, I've gotten a ridiculously big goal for this book and it's to be a New York Times bestseller. And I'll tell you, I have no business on the New York Times bestseller list. None. Zero. But I'm going for it anyway. Um, Because to get there, I need 10,000 copies sold in a week, which is a ridiculous goal, but I'm going for it. Why not? And uh, and hearing stories like Larry's just reminds me that if not me, who? If not now, when? Let's just do this thing. So anything you can do to buy the book on the 19th of July at 9 a.m. Central plays the algorithm to help that happen. So, there you go, Adam, a little bit more detail to the ask than normal.
1: Well, again, a big thanks to Larry Ambrose for joining us on the show. Big thanks to all of you for listening in and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. So, when we put one of these out there, you'll get them right away. Normal 40 TV also available for you on YouTube if you want to see our smiling faces as well. We're going to get back in the lab and work on the next edition of the of the podcast. We'll see you on the other side. For Liam, my name's Adam, and this has been Normal 40 the podcast.